Hello, everyone. This is Prose Poetry and Purpose, hosted by myself, March Twisdale, and today I am talking with Kathy Yardley, author of many books from romance to some of the best how-to writing books I have encountered in seven years of personally trying to write a novel and reading a lot of books about how to do it. Whether you are a reader, writer, both, or even neither, this is an interview you don't want to miss. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. So you just recently moved and your brain is probably not quite settled yet. I'm still trying to settle in. That's very true. Yeah. Last time I moved, my brain melted for about two and a half months, I think. (laughs) I remember at one point when I was living in the previous place, and it was a tight community and people would come up and say things to me like blah, 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 blah. And like for almost an entire month, I literally would just sort of like put a hand up in the air and like just turn and walk away because I just couldn't take anything else in. <laughs> okay, so um, you have my sympathy. Uh, did the move go well? The move went reasonably well. I mean, it was any move is stressful. A move across state uh, and about seven hours is definitely going to be stressful mm-hmm. uh, throw in a son and two dogs and it was it was definitely a challenge right not to mention the husband and the husband he he has definitely been the rock if it comes with a computer i'm all over it if right. it's manual labor i am not your girl right 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 right. <laughs> pretty much how we've split it yeah 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 doesn't surprise me, though, that you would be up for such a challenge because you basically help people all over the world face their own challenges. Uh, Let's break it down sort of in, I think it's just two main groups. You do uh, fiction, which is actually your own sort of, you call it geeky romance, and we'll get into that. And then the other side is all of the work you do that helps and supports other people. So I'm curious, when did you start writing in your life? Well, I started writing in childhood. I I would plink around with stories. But I come from a family of, like, accountants and engineers. So they never really – I never considered it, like, a career potential. It was always like, someday I'm going to retire and write books. But when I went to college, uh, I thought I would be a publicist uh, or in advertising because that was sort of the near occasion of writing. Right, right. Um, And then I discovered the Romance Writers of America shortly after graduating. What degree did you get in college? I got a double major in art history and mass communications. Oh, my goodness. Okay, and then you stumbled. (laughs) Go ahead. And then I stumbled on the RWA. Uh, And I thought, oh, I'll volunteer my services and maybe I'll be a book publicist and how cool would that be? And they're a great organization. I mean, they are incredibly helpful, incredibly knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. uh, very industry savvy. um, Mm -hmm. And they really, in joining the organization, helped me pursue my own career. I remember joining the board um, and that was one of those, you know, with any kind of small enthusiastic organization, it's sort of like you feel bad. <laughs> so, of course, you're going to join. Oh, yeah. Um, so I wound up becoming president of the board, and we had a contest, and we were short entries. So I put in one of my manuscripts, or a partial, and it won something. They encouraged me. I started submitting, and I wound up selling to Harlequin, mm-hmm. which was a shock. <laughs> 
and it just started the career from there. Right. So I wrote my first seven books with a day job, I think. And are you still directly involved with them right now in, a, in an organizational capacity? Uh, no, my life has been way too much in flux the past two years or so mm. for me to really be involved mm -hmm. uh, as much as I used to be. Got it. Um, but I know they've been been doing good work. Right. Um, and I've definitely been keeping track of them. I went, actually, I guess it was just over two years ago, I went to their national conference in San Diego. I was on a panel about diversity and romance, and I saw Beverly Jenkins give her keynote speech, and she's amazing. Um, she's one of the most prominent African-American romance writers, and she just had some phenomenal things to say um, about the state of the industry and how it's changed, how we can do better. So let's talk a little bit about the genre of romance or the romance genre, however people would call it. Um, I will admit that I um, don't read a lot in that genre, but um, usually when I was going around checking, you know, you know, looking at books for like three and a half hours until you went home with nine in your backpack. You know, I was looking at the covers. And a lot of times it was the cover art that would give me that decision about whether to, to go ahead and open up the book or look on the back, right? You know? Mm -hmm. And so usually they'd end up being like a historical romance. You know, there's a sense of fantasy when you're looking at something that's from the past. And I'm mostly a fantasy or sci-fi reader. So in those books that I read that later I realized they fell in the romance genre. They had such a strong historical component that they oftentimes had really strong and historically important women in them. So then recently I read one of your books in preparation for the interview and I was just super, super impressed with how you handled the um, female protagonist. Can you speak a little bit to the ways in which the romance genre actually send some really powerful messages? It's funny. I started reading romance when I was in probably high school. And I used to have to sneak them into the house because my mom was, you know, just very strict and sort of like, those things will rot your brain. <laughs> so naturally, I was completely drawn to them. <laughs> um, but I actually wound up doing a paper. I went to, to Berkeley, to Cal, uh, for university. And I did a paper on the romance genre um, and the stereotypes and the threads of feminism that, that run through it. Right. And it's funny because my grad student advisor at the time was like, so are you just going to write about women eating bonbons? And I was like, you're kidding. Me. Wait, wait, no, you're... and this is at Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Uh... So um, I was able to to read a lot of scholarly articles around the romance genre. And it's mm -hmm. because it is a genre written predominantly by women, mm -hmm. written predominantly for women, it doesn't get a lot of respect. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, it's the same thing over and over. Well, you know what? So is mystery. So mm -hmm. is Western. So why deride one genre and let the other ones alone. That's actually really, really interesting. I don't know if I'm just like naive, but sometimes I really think I forget just how much 
um, society can undervalue something purely because it is a, maybe a powerhouse place for women and feminine energy. But I had assumed that the derision that can sometimes be directed towards the genre would reflect our discomfort as a Protestant-backed culture with sex. But that's actually a great point, that it's by women for women. Well, and sex is definitely a component, and that's another thing. I mean, not all romances have sex. They're sweet romances, as they're called. Um, I mean, there's a whole huge genre of uh, Christian romances, which mm -hmm. the publishing industry for Christian romances is very, very strict. Yeah. You can't have, you know, you can't have the hero and heroine alone in a house at night that strict. I mean, their mm. their parameters are very tight. Really? Really. Oh. So... There's definitely that side of it. But on the other hand, sexy romances have only, I mean, I wrote some erotica novels. Um, God, this would have been like 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, and what was considered erotica at that point, these days would not be. So erotica um, is different than romance? It's. It's, I'd say it's a subgenre of romance, Got it. honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, erotica is more about you don't have to have uh, the happy ever after, which romance requires. Mm -hmm. You need to, or at least happy for right now. Um, erotica is more about uh, sex as kind of an avenue for self discovery or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a coming of. I, call it coming of consciousness rather than coming of age it's sex is the vehicle that your protagonist um experiences his or her changes whereas romance is love is the vehicle right and sex can be part of that uh -huh. but the emotional intimacy is always sort of um the main player so when Anne rice was writing her fairy tale series that was erotica that was erotica, right? Got it. Okay, okay, interesting. So, so let's give a couple of examples. I mean, how about from the book that I read, which I think is one of the not the most recent, but um, so Game of Hearts is just chock full of social messaging. To be honest, it's just it's just <laughs> just this rich, fabulous, wonderful story, and yet there's so much messaging in there. Tell us a little bit about how you do that without messing up the story. For my, for my writers out there, everyone knows you want to have story first. Tell us a little bit about how you do that. Well, the main story for Game of Hearts is it's about a woman who works at her family's auto shop, but her secret dream is to be basically someone who makes costumes for cosplay, which going to comic conventions and that sort of thing. And she's just extraordinarily talented, but there's only so many hours in the day and her job is very demanding. And when her brother, who works with her, gets injured, she calls her brother's best friend because she's under a tight deadline. She wants to win this costume contest, and she simply needs help. And he shows up, and they have been friends for years, and attraction ensues. And he's sort of wary because he, you know, sort of travels all over the country. He's part of a, a motorcycle club, uh, not in any kind of criminal capacity, it's mm -hmm. just simply a uh, lifestyle choice. And he doesn't want to necessarily settle down until he meets 
this woman mm-hmm. uh, and also kind of realizes that the reason he's been traveling so much is because he's been avoiding some childhood baggage. Uh, he is Native American and um, he had a lot of issues with his mom. She kicked him out when, when he was 17 or something mm-hmm. uh, because they had simply been battling and and um, she was young and, you know, just that kind of a single mom raising a kid at a young age herself and having those challenges. The brother's best friend is a classic romance trope. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's classic for a reason. It works. People like it. (laughs) If you can take a classic trope, you can then sort of add the social consciousness to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's kind of, it's a big part of my life. I'm half Asian, uh, being biracial, uh, experiencing the world as a biracial person is definitely something I am attuned to, but it's not something that informs my entire life. It's not like I go up to say to people and say, hi, I'm Kathy Arden, I'm biracial. Right. Just, I'm Kathy. I, I'm a writer. I'm a mom. You know, mm-hmm. we recently moved, stuff like that. So taking the details, the the smaller details and incorporating them in without necessarily smacking the reader over the head with them is how you can get the messaging in in a way that supports the story rather than detracts from it. So in other words, you set up a really powerful storyline sort of almost with um, initially a stereotypic sort of character husk and then you fill those characters with backstory that personalizes them and can go in all sorts of interesting directions. But it, it's not like, you know, the story is about someone who has this goal to go out and change everyone's mind about this issue. Instead, right. it's a typical story storyline that we can roll with and understand to a degree, but then the personal characteristics are where you're able to flesh out these other issues and that way it doesn't come across as forced it just comes across as as real i actually joke with a lot of my clients my writing uh clients that you you approach it like method acting Mm. the deeper you can get into your character the less stereotypical that character will be no matter what the setup is you can make anything work if you dig deep enough, and you create the details to support it. So, let's see here. You work specifically with writers. Tell us a little bit about how you do that, and both so people know how they can get a hold of you, but also what brought that into what you were doing. Um, I started Rocky Writing. That's my... Uh, working with writing clients mm-hmm. business. I started that about uh, 12 years ago, I think. Mm. And I have always loved working with writers since my days at the RWA. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that I have a knack for helping authors figure out their plots. A lot of people ask, oh, is your book character-driven or plot-driven? And that drives me a little nuts. <laughs> Because any good story is driven by both. 
the plot is always informed by your character. If you don't know your character, you don't know your story. Mm-hmm. That said, if you're just exploring character without giving it a framework, then your story is probably going to muddle and sort of flail around and go nowhere. Mm-hmm. They have to both be present. So um, doing some editing, uh, and I do these things called plot sessions, which is a one-hour phone call where I talk with an author. They sort of spew out all the weird and random details of this amorphous story that they kind of want to write but they're not sure about. Mm -hmm. And then I ask them questions and I make some suggestions, uh, always keeping in mind that they are the master of the story. They know what the story is ultimately about. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the hour, we usually have, okay, these are your main characters. This is their GMC, which stands for Goal, Motivation, and Conflict. Right. And these are your, these are your major turning points. Right. And it gives them a framework. I mean, it's not, you know, scene by scene, but it's all the major plot points, anything that they would need to then go back and write their story. If they're a plotter, then they'll probably break it down even further into scenes. If they're more of a seat-of-the-pants writer, then it gives them enough of an idea that, you know, it's like a back-of-the-envelope instructions, like, okay, I'm going to go this way, and then this is going to happen. So, folks, you, you can go to a couple of different places here. You can go to kathyyardley.com, but you can also just go straight to www.rockyourwriting.com. And that's what I'm looking at right now. And I love at the top how it says, sell a lot without selling out. What exactly did you mean by that little phrase? I noticed a lot of people were frustrated in trying to build writing careers. And they felt like they had to write to specific formula or they had to give up what they really wanted to write in order to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, And I work with genre fiction writers. So that can be romance, that can be fantasy or sci-fi or westerns or Mm -hmm. mystery writers or suspense writers. Things that can be stereotypical, that do run to a certain kind of formula. The trick is to take something that has a formula and make it your own. And I love that. That is just something that lights me up. Mm -hmm. And helping people find their unique story within a genre is a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I No, I bet it is. So when you look at the books here, the Rock Your Writing series that you're sort of talking about, I own all of these, folks. <laughs> and what's really great is that, Kathy, um, these are available on Audible also. So this is these, these books, the funny thing is that when I first stumbled upon your work, I think it was about four or five years ago. I don't remember exactly how I, how I came about it, but I was on a writing retreat in Canada. And I got one of the books, you know, on the computer and I would sit there because I was on literally by myself writing retreat. It was just me away for a week, no kids, no animals, no husband, no nothing. And every time I was in the kitchen preparing food, my little computer, my laptop would be sitting up there on the counter and I would be listening to your books. And I have actually done this every time I've gone on a writing retreat. And I have them now on my phone as well. And it's so reassuring and inspiring and informative 
and incredibly well-researched, and I'll hit the pause button and whip out, you know, a notebook and and jot down, okay, I need to do this and come up with my sort of to-do list. And I really can't say enough about your work, and I'm so grateful that you took the time to make it available to the rest of us. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, folks, you're going to want to check this out. You know, Rock Your Plot is pretty obvious. Rock Your Revisions rock your query there's right every day and that's what i want to talk about sort of next but you also i noticed you have a painless promotion series starting is that true i do um right now i think i have two books in that series Mm -hmm. one is just sort of the overall theory behind creating a promotion plan and the other is genre and voice and that is figuring out what genre your book is and what your audience is because I noticed a lot of clients of mine had difficulty placing. They'd say, well, it's it's kind of a mystery, but it's kind of set in space, and there's a love story, so I'm not quite sure where to place it. (laughs) Um, So this helps people narrow down what genre they're in, and that helps if you're going to be either querying traditional publishing or you're going to be self-publishing. You still need to choose a genre Mm -hmm. um, and choose you know, keywords and key aspects uh, for wherever you're marketing it, whether it's on Amazon or, you know, Apple, iBookstore, whatever. Right. And you have clearly um, done your research. I love at the end of each of the books when you go through, or even in the middle of it, well, you you just do such a great job of saying, and this great tip I got from so-and-so's book, blah, blah, blah. And then you go on and you sort of like, you know, present it in your fashion. And so... So, folks, this isn't, you know, it's not like just, you know, one person who said, here are my ideas. I mean, you obviously have really um, gleaned incredibly good information and then run it through your own life and process and come up with what's best. So thank you very much. I highly recommend for everyone out there who's already writing, uh, whether you're published or not, just seriously check these out. You will not be sorry that you did. You'll be super happy that you did. And, and like Rock Your Query, that's only, I think, 37 minutes. So that's actually pretty short and succinct on Audible, if I remember correctly. Should be, yeah. Let's see here. A little bit more deeply back into, just for folks who are joining us, uh, you're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on 101.9 FM, KVSH. My name's March Twisdell, your host today. I'm talking with Kathy Yardley. And she has written a lot of books, uh, both in the romance genre and then also in the sort of how to um, how to write genre. But back to romance really quick. You know, we're coming out of a the Me Too energy that swept through, like, the whole world practically over the past year and a half is still strong. And I think a lot of people, I'm going to say people, I'm not going to say women, a lot of people in the world are just really sort of like, done waiting, ready for this to happen. Let's just get equal and and deal with this stuff when it comes to feminism and patriarchy and all this stuff. So romance as a genre, rather than women being these stereotypic little weaklings who need to be rescued by these big, strong, strapping men or something. I mean, romance is doing a lot for actually going the opposite direction. I would say that romance has had strong heroines for a long time. Obviously not all the way across the board because it sort of depends on what the fantasy is. Um, But women are the protagonists 
protagonist being defined as a character that changes from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. They always exhibit character growth. Um, and that growth can be from a relatively weak position to a strong position. And just getting the hero is, I would say, rarely to never the goal. There's always something else. Um, she's trying to start a business or trying to get a new job or trying to, you know, renovate a house or whatever. It's something that she feels personally strong about. And it's not that the love is secondary. It's simply that the love is part of her growth process. So like in Game of Hearts, for example, uh, I would say that the protagonist was in a way learning to honor herself and not just do what women typically do in this culture, which is subsume their own interests and take care of everyone else first. Exactly. Um, and that was really illustrated with her brother who was used to sort of taking advantage of her because she cared about him, cares about her family and was used to putting other people's needs first. Mm-hmm. And then there's even a um, a potential like um, hostage taking type of scene, you know, where <laughs> she completely self-defends. No one else is around. She, you know, handles it with a plum. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that there's still the tradition of the alpha male that's not my particular cup of tea. I don't generally write alpha males. I write what would be called beta males, which are mm-hmm. people who, you know, men are, who are more sensitive to a certain extent. Um, I mean, this guy is also like a six foot four biker. So. Six foot seven? I think There's he's six some... foot seven. <laughs> Something like that. He's just ginormous. Yeah. Uh, and muscular and that sort of thing. But just because he has those physical characteristics does not mean that he has to be brooding or that he has to somehow make himself more important by putting down the heroine's interests. Um, Mm -hmm. Personally, especially in this particular series, I'm really interested in uh, making sure consent, uh, since you mentioned the Me Too movement. Right. Consent has not always been there, especially in things like historicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the argument is, well, back then, you know, mm-hmm. men were men and, you know, they took what they wanted, whatever. Yeah, but it's still not something that I have to, it's not going to be something I look at as a fantasy. It, it, right. If anything, it's going to yank me out of the story where it's just like, God, this guy's a piece of work. Or... <laughs> not. Or it's diminishing, I mean, you know, one of the problems when we glamorize or fantasize about a time when women literally had no power or legal rights and were property, you know, it's so funny that we we fantasize about that, but we don't fantasize or glamorize the owning of people of African ancestry in the American South during the days of slavery, legalized enslavement. We don't glamorize how those slaves must have loved being owned, but then there are books where some woman is supposed to just, you know, somehow be having this great glorious experience at the age of 13 or 14 as she's, you know, being taken 
by, you know, some guy who's decided she's going to be his or something. So when we glamorize that, I think it can confuse people who are alive today and make them actually imagine that maybe women enjoyed being powerless pieces of property. Right. I'm seeing some some nice trends as far as, actually, there's an author named Tessa Dare who writes these fantastic historicals that are really funny, but also have some solid feminist sensibilities. She has one where the Duchess deal, I believe, um, and a woman uh, who was from the gentry, her her father was like a reverend or something, but he kicked her out of the house because she had sex with someone Mm -hmm. uh, and got caught. So she was a seamstress, and uh, it's a Beauty and the Beast trope. That mm. uh, had been injured at Waterloo, just tore up by uh, munitions. Mm-hmm. And he uh, winds up asking her to marry him because he needs an heir. And she has a lot of great commentary about the working class woman versus noble women. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it's just, and also the fact that she wasn't a virgin, you know, that wasn't like the big deal. She's like, I, I've had sexual experience, you know, before you. I hope that's not a problem. But if it is, it's too bad. There's not a lot I can do about this. Mm-hmm. And I don't regret it. I regret what happened after. But, you know, I thought I was in love. Right, right. Actually humanizing that experience that befell so many and still does, you know, these beautiful young women who were, you know, murdered by some guy who wants to marry them in India or somewhere and they say no, you know, acid is being thrown upon young girls who don't choose the suitor who wants them. And they're still stoning women to death in parts of the world every single year, just because oftentimes they were actually raped. But even if they weren't, it's like they're not allowed to own the fact that they maybe wanted to get together with someone who they'd been in love with for, you know, or at least had a huge crush on or something. So yeah, I think that's really cool that someone has gone in and is starting to do that. Yeah. And I think that that's the case in a lot of, definitely in a lot of the, the sexier romances out there and just the romances in general, women are taking charge of their own sexual experience um, and sort of owning it rather than, you know, being these blushing, I don't know what's going on here, you know, <laughs> um, and the, right. the, the big alpha male, you know, introduces them to the experience and he owns it. And, you know, this is all, you know, I'm the only thing she'll ever experience. That gets a little weird. Yeah. 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 So, um, you also have, um, some chiclet that you've written. Yeah. Although I think they call it something different now. Yeah. So, so, so tell us a little bit about what that genre meant when you were writing or what you think it means now, just, just to give my readers a sense of what chiclet might refer to. Chiclet is funny. I mean, it's romantic. It's got romantic elements, but the romance doesn't have to be the central part of it. Uh, it's usually kind of a coming of age story for women in their twenties. Uh, it's definitely humorous women's fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like writing about really quirky characters in these sort of um, areas of geeky obsession that I have. <laughs> so I wrote one book about um, a woman who was interested in 
uh, manga, mm-hmm. which is the Japanese comic books. Um, and she wins an internship and goes to Japan, and she has to negotiate the culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually half Japanese, uh, so I got to address that feeling of being biracial and being not quite of any one culture mm-hmm. where you can either be an outsider or you can be a bridge. Um, right. Depending. Right. Yeah, um, I'm looking at that one right now. It's called Turning Japanese, correct? Right. Yes. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, I wrote another one called L.A. Woman, which is more the sort of the classic chiclet of uh, a young woman her life implodes where she like <laughs> she loses her job and loses her boyfriend and loses everything. It loses where she lives and she has to start fresh and then hilarity ensues. Um, and that was kind of loosely based on my own experiences in my twenties um, and, <laughs> and discovering like the club scene down in LA and that sort of thing. And really? Yeah. Ah, okay. I see. We could go a whole other direction. I have never, ever been to a club in L.A. What would you say are like the top three words that come to mind? Uh, well, this was back in the day. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Don't make me feel uh, that old. I went to goth clubs, uh, which was always something I was interested in in high school, but never again. I had a reasonably strict upbringing, so going goth would probably not have flown uh, with my Asian mom. Mm-hmm. But when I went down to LA, I made friends. They were just like, oh, we're, we're going to go goth clubbing. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it was just amazing. I mean, I remember being in a club at one o'clock in the morning and they were playing This is Halloween from Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. It was in German. They were singing it, but it was in German. And it was just like, this is my life. (laughs) I was just wearing like this little tiny black dress with these huge Doc Martens. And And the whole makeup thing going on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So wait, where did you grow up? I grew up down in in San Diego. Okay, okay. Junior high and high school. And before that, I'd lived in like upstate New York, so... Okay. But I went to L.A. after college and really hmm. had a great time. <laughs> right on. Um, I'm going to have, okay, new new book heading toward the top of my reading pile, apparently. And I, I love, um, now you say manga. I was thinking anime. Are they, Is that basically the same thing, but manga's in a book and anime's on the TV? Basically. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All righty. So... I can see why you're able to offer really good support to writers who work with you because it, you know, you're not pigeonholed at all. You're all over the place. I have been. That's kind of a blessing and a curse when you're a writer. You want to build a brand, so you want to go deep. But mm-hmm. uh, most writers I know, their minds go in a lot of different directions. Right. So you want to respect that too. Yeah, totally. I know, right? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like I'm really torn because there's there's my whole advocate political you know revolution type of side where I really care a lot about helping people shift how they see things out of the the boxes that we've been taught and into this blizzard of options that the planet offers and then on the other side you know I have this fictional world that I that I'm creating 
And, you know, I always worry about whether the two of them are going to come into conflict or whether someone won't like my politics and therefore won't read my book, you know? And I'm like, that idea of how do you, you know, sell a lot without selling out, it's an interesting question. So, yeah. I'd say that if you feel strongly about something political, odds are good it's bleeding into your fiction anyway. It's um, very true. And odds are also good that people who disagree with your politics probably won't like your fiction anyway. They're not going to be your audience. They're not going to be your people. Yeah. The trick is to be yourself out loud. You can think about it as your audience is like iron filings mixed in with sawdust, and you're just going to be a magnet. Mm. And just go over that audience, and whoever you attract, you attract. Don't think about, oh, I might be turning someone away. Mm-hmm. Because there's right. plenty of audience out there. You want to be as specific as possible. Right. Right. That's actually, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Game of Hearts, for example, is going to appeal very much to, um, I would say, sort of a lot of people who you might find in the Pacific Northwest over here on the west side of the state. You know, we're, we're very, um, there's, um, there's gay rights you know, sort of represented in there and it's localized and you've got the Native American component and stuff. Whereas perhaps like we were talking about earlier, someone who's looking for a very cut and dried, um, clear Christian romance may not be interested in your book. But if you had tried to change your book in some way so that those people wouldn't be turned off, then you would have completely watered it down. Exactly. One size fits all really doesn't fit anyone well. In so many ways and on so many topics. I agree. Okay, so you have a novella coming out in October called, I'm going to try to say this so it comes across clearly, Ms. Behave. Um, tell us a little bit about it because it's, it's actually, you know, that's this month now and available, but it's a novella. So for our readers, give them a sense of what that is. And then for our writers, could you touch a little bit upon that whole sort of question there is about should you write a novella or should you not write a novella? You know, go for it. Um, This is uh, a novella, so it's about 20,000 words. Uh, It's um, longer than short story, uh, but not obviously a full novel, basically. Um, It's part of a series for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this series, it's the sixth book in the series, and the series currently has four full-length novels and two novellas. I like novellas for side characters that I want to explore their story, but I don't feel like they have a full, meaty character arc. Got it. They're more fun and more light. Mm -hmm. Um, And this particular book is about one of the friends from... um, actually the world that Game of Hearts takes place in. Um, And they're all kind of geeky and fun. And Misbehave um, is uh, about this, this, uh, the heroine, Mallory, um, Mm -hmm. who is a bit of a prankster. uh, And uh, she gets back together with a guy that she had been interested in and was best friends with in childhood before he basically ran off to become an actor uh, in Los Angeles and now is back because their show films um, in North Bend. 
Right, right, right. Is Mallory the one who meets with the protagonist in um, Game of Hearts uh, when she freaks out and runs away and desperately needs help? That's the one. That's I loved Mallory. She's a lot of fun, and I knew kind of what story I wanted her to have, but I also knew that she wasn't going to have the same kind of level of character arc that... Uh, that Kyla has from Game of Hearts or that Tessa had from Level Up or any of the previous books. Right. Um, it was just, it was light. It's fun. It's vaguely Halloween themed. Um, and she doesn't strike. Firefly references. <laughs> and she doesn't strike me as the type of person who would be um, focused on behaving herself. So I love the title. Okay. So as far as whether a writer should write a novella or a full scale novel, Novellas have the same level of rigor. You still need to know your characters. You still need to plot them out. Um, you can't really skimp on, say, conflict simply because the word count is shorter. Mm-hmm. So think carefully uh, about how much story you want to be working with. Mm-hmm. If you're starting out, you want to think about your audience. Um, if you are traditionally or looking to traditionally publish, it's hard to simply sell a novella mm-hmm. um, or even maybe a series of novellas. Um, if you're self-publishing, a series of novellas could be a good way to build an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, novellas interspersed with full-length novels works well, um, especially if you're trying to publish more than one or two titles a year. Yeah, it's a good way to have content out on a regular basis without killing yourself. Right, right. I was just going to say, you got to have new content out. So what? So for folks out there, I want to make sure you guys all know that we're talking about a series sort of classified under the concept a fandom hearts novel. That's that's like the subtitle of this, this series, right? Right. Right, 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 right. So I read, I think, was the first one, Game of Hearts. And then there's, um, and you can find all this at under books on the website, the level up, one true pairing hooked. And then you're saying that Ms. Behave is part of that series, but it's just a smaller piece. Um, so a fandom hearts novella. This is about the whole world of the people who sort of enjoy um, Comic-Con and things like that? It's a series title, but the series does revolve around people who are interested in geeky pursuits, who are the like comic books, Comic-Con, video okay. games, uh, cosplay, the whole nine yards. Got it. So that's like a shared area of interest that, that these characters have. That's like the theme in a way running through the series. Right. Cool. Okay, great, great, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I know So it was really cool when you were doing this. I enjoyed it because I have a bunch of friends who go to, I think it's called Comic-Con, the one that happens here in Seattle. The one in Seattle, I think, is Emerald City Comic Con, yeah. Yeah, and I have friends who have been going for years, and I always hear about it, and it's a whole week that gets taken up in their life. And I've never actually gone, and I've always sort of wanted to, but, you know, I've got kids, and I'm busy, and I'm on an island, blah, 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 blah. But, um, but now, to be honest, I'm sort of like, okay, i got to figure out when the next <laughs> one is. i got to get my tickets, and I'm just going to go. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I should make a costume. <laughs> <laughs> so this is one of those ways that fiction can change our lives. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> okay, okay, don't scare me. <laughs> Do you have a favorite one that you would recommend to people who have never been? To a Comic-Con? Yeah. Here in the area, um, you know, for our local audience. I think that the Emerald City one is a, is a I mean, it's kind of 
crowded and it's nuts, but it's it's the full experience. Right. I mean, that's the point, right? To be crowded and nuts yeah. in a way. I think so. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of great costumes and a lot of enthusiastic people. And mm-hmm. It's different than, say, San Diego Comic-Con, which is, you know, the mother of all Comic-Cons. And it's that is an experience. I've been a couple of times, and it's, it's insane. Sounds like a bucket list experience, in other words. Exactly. Yeah. I would imagine being so close to Hollywood – you probably have a, a higher um, threshold on some of the artistry maybe that goes into the costume making? I don't know. There's good costumers kind of all over the place now hmm. um, just because the information and mm-hmm. you know, uh, the level of artistry can be found anywhere. So this is people dressing up like their favorite um, comic book characters or like your character in your book I think she dressed up like I, I, I don't watch Game of Thrones and no one like you know throw spitballs at me for that I don't watch it <laughs> but I think Kyla was dressing up like that super blonde right. girl who controls the dragons right Daenerys okay and then her boyfriend or the costume she was making was for the leader of the horse people Right. No. Oh, okay. See. See. I. I, I wasn't you completely out can, of the loop. Usually, you can get a lot of this stuff from content. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I, hopefully, and that was one of the the pitfalls of writing uh, for a geeky audience. But it also showed that I was very committed to. I know who my audience is. I know what they'll like. And if you have to explain it too much, then it detracts. So right. You want to put in the references in a way that it'll make sense to those who are unfamiliar with the world, um, but it doesn't spell everything out. Yeah. You know, if they don't get it, it didn't run the story. Um, and maybe right. they'll be curious and want to go figure a little bit more, you know. But um, And then if they do get it, of course, they're just completely, you know, happy. So yes. <laughs> there's there's one of the things that you are so good at and – I trust you're taking your own advice very much so at this point as well, given what happened over the past couple of years, is that you do a really good job advocating for people who want to write, who want to survive the desire to write, to have realistic expectations, to not be kicking themselves because the goal didn't happen, but instead analyzing why it didn't happen and figuring out how they can actually tweak things in their life to get to goals that are achievable. That's like the best way I have to express what you do. And so tell us a little bit about what happened the last couple of years, because I'm sure a bunch of your fans out there are listening right now and how you're recovering and what you may have learned along the way. All right. Uh, well, last year, uh, last spring or so, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, fortunately, it was fairly early on, um, but it still required surgery and radiation, um, and it really knocked me for a loop because I had deadlines for this series, uh, which were already in place, and I also have my 
coaching, uh, writer's coaching business, Rocky Writing, that I had client calls scheduled. Um, so I basically had to shut Rocky Writing down um, while I was going into radiation every day, and uh, that wiped me out. Um, and that went yeah. on for a couple of months. Um, so I'd written a book called Write Every Day, which mm -hmm. is a little tiny bit of a misnomer because it isn't necessarily about forcing yourself to write every day. Mm -hmm. It's about recognizing your own process and respecting it so you can continue to have momentum, so you can continue to write on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, and I simply did not have energy. Uh, and that was something um, that it's something that, you know, you have to focus on if you want to write and you can't. Right. One of the things to look at is what is your energy level? You know, mm -hmm. are you drained? Can you be taking care of yourself? Mm -hmm. um, is there something that is contributing to your lack of energy? And you and already... Case, there was really nothing I could do. Right. And so you... What I think is sort of like really actually beautiful that you'd already written this book before you went through this really important life experience because it probably helped you to maybe avoid some of the unrealistic panic attacks or, you know, the anxiety when you just ran up against a wall that was closer than you wanted it to be. You wanted a little bit more space to do more things and you couldn't. And how did you adjust, right? Right. Yeah. It, definitely it was frustrating and the recovery time was longer um, than I had anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, so that was just frustrating. Um, I yeah. think that's the worst where even if you're, you think you're managing expectations, part of you is like, damn it, I should have, <laughs> like, I, I know I can do this. Why can't I do this? Right. Right. Managing expectations and being happy about it, not the same thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so easy for us, especially as women in this culture, for so many reasons as women in this culture to um, just, you know, we either forget what we have done. You know, I mean, how, how many times do, you know, do we get to the end of a day and we feel like we didn't get to that one thing that was on our list that we wanted to get to. So we feel like a failure and we're ignoring the other 19 things on the list that we did get done. Mm -hmm. um, or there's just a sense that if I, you know, someone else out there would be doing better than me, they would have gotten the writing done. You know, I mean, there's so many ways in which I think we can beat, each, beat ourselves up. And your, your books, just especially your tone of voice for people out there who, even if you, if you have a choice between getting these books in the Kindle version or in the Audible version, and if you only can do one, which I could understand because, you know, um, money might be tight or whatever the deal is, I would go for the Audible because I just think that Kathy's voice is a rich and valuable part of the experience. You do a great job of loading all sorts of um, beneficial feelings into how you read your own writing. So just really, it's super, super awesome. Well, thank you. Well, yeah. it's 
a topic that's very, very dear to my heart. So I'm glad that came across. Yeah, I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I just feel great appreciation when, um, I mean, you know, you're just my favorite thing to listen to on my phone. <laughs> because we need um, encouragement, us writers, don't we? Absolutely. I very rarely, if ever, come across writers who are simply, you know, self-confident and raring to go and, you know, life's a dream and the writing's smooth and they never have any hiccups. It's always people who even they could be on their first book or their 10th book and they're just like, oh my God, I'm three quarters of the way through this or halfway through this and I don't know who told me I could write. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. This is terrible. And they I were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of my job is simply telling people, no, you've done this nine other times. <laughs> this is just part of the process. You're experiencing a lack of perspective. Right. Uh, or a loss of perspective. And that happens every time. You wouldn't be a writer if you didn't have these moments. Right. So it's just a matter of, I call it, just have a crazy check. I used to do that with my best friend all the time where I'd call her up and say, oh, this book sucks. She's like, all does not suck, my friend. <laughs> I can do it. Okay. So and how old is your son? He just turned 12. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Well, I am... I am. I mean, I would have been happy anyways, for your sake, obviously, that you have had such a um, positive outcome to your health crisis. I know, um, I think it's becoming the norm nowadays. Thank goodness. I know so many women who, you know, they make it past their five-year check and just, you know, it's now 10 years past that and things are going great. But especially with a young child, that was my main thought when I first heard about what was going on is that, you know, the fact that you have a young child that still needs his mom so much is a is a huge part of that experience. So I'm very happy you're doing so well. Thank you. Yeah. And unfortunately, we are out of time. I imagine, um, folks listening out there, you probably want to know more. So let me just remind you, especially if you just joined us partway through, best contact directly for Kathy. And it's Kathy with a C is kathy at rockyourwriting.com. You can also check out a bunch of her work at Kathy Yardley with an L-E-Y dot com. And uh, let's see, you have a novella coming out this month called Ms. Behave, which is part of the A Fandom Hearts novel series. And do you have anything new coming out in the writing advice genre? Uh, not this year. I'm looking to release a few more titles next year. Okay. Okay. Yay. Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> and um, yeah, thank you, Kathy, very much for joining me today. Well, thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, folks, so you've been listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, brought to you by Voice of Vashon, KVSH, our local radio station, uh, airing throughout the Seattle region on 101.9 FM. And my name is March Twisdale, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Kathy Yardley, author of a whole bunch of books. Go check out our website. And um, if you missed some of the show, 
You can go to marchtwisdale.com for all previous episodes of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, as well as my other occasional series called Focus On. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is the show where writers share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I will leave you with the wonderful song called We Are the Many by Makana. <laughs>